I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I wanna welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're gonna be talking about one of the most famous Americans of the 19th century, um, both before, especially during, and then after the American Civil War, so famous that he ends up on American currency, (laughs) but probably not so famous and definitely not so well understood today. And that American is Ulysses S. Grant, U.S. Grant, the general, the president, and the unusually thoughtful interpreter of America. And to talk about U.S. Grant and his life and his legacy, I'm joined by Professor Andy Lang. Andy's professor teaches history at Mississippi State University. He is uh, a great friend of the Ashbrook Center, has been teaching in our Masters of Arts in American History and Government program for uh, a couple of years now at least, and also doing our Teaching American History seminars. He is a terrific teacher, a deep scholar of the 19th century, uh, 19th century America, of the Civil War, and of the post-Civil War period. He's a uh, prolific author, having written and edited and been involved with a number of books on this subject. So we're delighted today to have Andy with us. He's really an expert who knows U.S. Grant, who knows the era, and has some very interesting insights on the mind, the life, and the legacy of this fascinating American. Andy Lang, thanks for joining us today on The American Idea. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jeff. Um, Ulysses Grant. Tell us, for, those, for some of our listeners who may not know, they've heard of him, of course. They've seen him if they've looked at some currency. Um, they know of him, and they might even know that this year is the 200th anniversary of his birth. But they don't know necessarily much about him or couldn't place him in the context of American history. Tell us a little bit about the historical context and some of the early biography of Grant. Absolutely. Um, Grant is one of those uh, unique characters who lived in uh, the major transformative moments of uh, the broad sweep of the 19th uh, century, even though um, he did not rise to prominence or, or at least become prominent in the in the public eye until uh, 1861. Uh, some uh, three decades, three and a half decades after his after his birth, um, you know the the standard story of Grant goes goes something like this. He was born into a 
a stable family uh, in 1822, um, whose uh, his, his father, Jesse, um, a prominent Whig, uh, even kind of flirted with uh, abolitionism uh, in his, in his uh, uh, public life, it served as a, as a role model of sorts to Grant, um, insofar as how Jesse wanted him to become educated, have a, have a strong, uh, stable career, uh, but, you know, our, our, our popular image of Grant suggests that he kind of bumbled his way through his, through his early life and uh, in, incurred and experienced uh, nothing but failure uh, until the advent of Civil War changed his life. Um, we're going to talk a lot about Grant's rehabilitation uh, today, I, I, I trust. And, and among that rehabilitation is Grant's early life. Um, he did indeed grow up in a, in a strong, stable family that valued education, thriftiness, virtue. Um, unlike his father, uh, Grant seemed ambivalent about politics, and though he was also ambivalent about the direction his father wanted him to go, uh, he did concede and uh, enter West Point, or the United States Military Academy, uh, in 1839. Uh, and there's a, there's, there's a fun little story um, about, about Grant entering West Point. Back in those days when um, uh, somebody went to West Point, they had to be recommended. Uh, by a U.S. congressman. Well, and the congressman whom uh, Jesse Grant, his father, uh, recommended, uh, the, the young Grant, uh, he, he actually got his name wrong. Uh, Grant was born Hiram Ulysses Grant, um, but the congressman uh, mistook his name and wrote U.S. Grant on his recommendation list. Grant arrives at West Point. Uh, the clerk at the desk says, uh, you're uh, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, and Grant said, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm Hiram Simpson Grant. And uh, Nevertheless, from that point on, Grant just kind of shrugged his shoulders and went by Ulysses S. Grant. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> he had an undistinguished career, uh, career at West Point. He, he graduated 21st out of 36, uh, right in that meaty part of the curve in, in uh, 1843. Though he, uh, he, he, he loved uh, mathematics, uh, he, was, he was quite good at it, uh, but his, his greatest love uh, was uh, with horses. Um, he cared deeply for animals and, and horses in particular. At West Point, um, he did learn military science in, in so far as it went, but his true love was painting, literature, especially novels. After graduation, uh, he went out west uh, and was stationed Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, first of all, um, 1843. Then uh, he uh, his, his first big army experiences in the United States War with Mexico from 1846 to 1848, uh, where he did have a distinguished uh, wartime career. Though it was a war that he profoundly disagreed with, um, he called the United States-Mexican War "quote a wicked war." Uh, I regard the war as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation, and, and that. That, that, that political awareness is, is going to come back in a, in a great way um, in, in Grant's later public career. Yeah, can I ask you about that for just a moment? Absolutely. Because it's fascinating to me. That, that echoes that argument that the Mexican War, in which he sort of gets his first, as you say, real chops in the U.S. Army, um, the injustice of that war, the, the fact that a lot of people regard it as an unnecessary war, the, that argument was one of the strong arguments of the Whigs, especially the Whigs who leaned toward opposition to slavery, right? Because they think that the, expand, the Mexican War is taken on to take, add territory 
to make it slave territory. Absolutely. And that, that's the point. Uh, that, that quote I read is the point that Grant makes in his memoirs, absolutely, about the Mexican War. Um, and, and I think that at the time, um, and e even in the 1840s, uh, Grant did indeed disagree with the political um, motivation behind the Mexican War. And I think that he derived that in large measure from his Whig upbringing, uh, derived by his anti-slavery uh, father. Uh, but of course, uh, as, a, as a good army man, Grant kept his political opinions to himself, though in private he did express um, his, uh, his discomfort with the war, um, a war that many Whigs would have indeed, as you said, Jeff, um, condemned as, as, a, as a conspiracy to expand slavery across the Southwest um, at the hands of the proponents of slavery in the Democratic Party, uh, led by James K. Polk. Um, but of course, uh, the United States emerged victorious in the war against Mexico, uh, acquiring uh, the, the great territories from Texas uh, to California. And it was in California uh, that Grant was stationed uh, during uh, his uh, post-war uh, career. Um, and it was at that moment um, in the early 1850s that Grant just uh, uh, tired at best of his military career and at worst, slipped into depression. Um, after the Mexican War, he, he had uh, married um, a woman named uh, Julia Dent, um, whom he deeply loved. And um, in California, he profoundly missed his family. And here we see one of the first uh, great, if not unfortunate, episodes that has um, long influenced Grant's historical reputation. Uh, to deal with the distance from his family, he, he turned to drink. Um, unfortunately, um, one particularly unfortunate episode uh, led Grant to uh, get drunk, and his commanding officer, uh, who hated Grant, used that episode as a way to, to push Grant out of the Army. Uh, Grant resigned uh, in 1854 based on this uh, uh, unfortunate episode, but he was at least able to go back home um, and be with his family. Now, I'll, I'll use this as a, as a side point. We'll just get it out of the way now. You know, one of the one of the stigmas of Grant's historical reputation is that he was little more than a bumbling drunk. Um, that's not true. Uh, Grant uh, was one of those uh, people who had a, a very low tolerance for alcohol. One or two uh, uh, cups of whiskey would would do it for him. Um, when he was a, a general in the army and as president, he rarely, if ever, consumed alcohol, knowing full well that he couldn't couldn't handle it. Uh, but, you know, his political enemies at the time and since uh, used that as a way to tarnish and besmirch uh, his reputation. Um, and it's, a, it's, a reput it's an image that has sullied Grant's uh, uh, legacy uh, ever since, at least until recent. It's fascinating that you say that, because when I think of even you describing the young Grant and his interests at West Point, I mean, I, I think you said um, he really loved horses and couldn't abide cruelty to horses. You also said, if I'm not mistaken, that he really loved painting, literature, and novels. That is a long way from the hard scrabble drunk that is often was often portrayed, uh, made Grant made into by his enemies. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I've come to understand uh, the young uh, Ulysses S. Grant as someone who's genuinely curious. 
about the world around him. Um, far from being that, that uh, anti-intellectual dolt that his uh, political enemies painted him as, I think that he was quite savvy uh, with, the, with the finer arts, the humanities, um, and just, just basic questions about the human condition. Um, it, 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 it's that instinct that is going to uh, uh, grow uh, to full fruition during the presidency when he begins to articulate, uh, I think, a very distinct philosophy uh, about the human condition, about natural human equality, um, and, and the role of the nation and the government in perpetuating um, ideas of human equality. The, his, his, his rhetoric, though, though simple, to be sure, uh, during, during the presidency, it wasn't, it wasn't by accident. And, and I think that it's rooted in his upbringing and his, and his formative years. Um, you know, there, there's that other image of Grant as, you know, from 1854 to 1861, the, the man who just fails at, at everything he put his hand to. Um, and to an extent, that's true. But I also think we see someone who stalled it. Uh, we see someone who um, wants to take care of his family. Nothing matters more to Grant than his, than his wife and his children and ensuring um, their, their material um, needs. And that's what he does. He, he, he does uh, move from job to job, failure to failure, out of a, out of a sense of duty uh, uh, to his family. And there we see him uh, in 1858 and 1859 uh, clerking in his father's uh, leather uh, shop in Galena, Illinois, uh, on the eve of uh, the uh, presidential election of 1860 and the secession of seven southern states from 1860 into 1861. Um, fascinating thing about that, though. Grant had only voted in one presidential election in his life, the 1856 election, uh, where he voted for uh, the Democrat, uh, the Northern Democrat, James Buchanan, which is seemingly an odd choice for someone who will become a great Republican and, and, and defender of unions. It, it does, and, and it's, you're right. And it strikes me, in fact, as odd given his Whig upbringing. Yeah, but there, there is a logic to it. Um, Grant came to become extremely unsettled in the 1850s by the, by the rumblings and the threats of powerful Southern slaveholders who, who threatened to uh, rend the Union in the name of slavery. And in, in 1856, Grant believed that Buchanan, instead of the more uh, uh, radical Republican John C. Fremont, Buchanan offered um, a stability, uh, a, na a national continuity to preserving the Union that the Republicans, at least as he believed in 1856, did not. Um, and it becomes even more ironic because in 1860, he considered himself uh, a Democrat in the vein of uh, Stephen A. Douglas, um, Abraham Lincoln's great political rival from, from Illinois. Um, now, Grant couldn't vote in the 1860 election because of residency requirements in Illinois, he being uh, a native of Ohio. But the, but the big turn for Grant uh, happens uh, when the seven states of the, of the Deep South secede and civil war is imminent. Um, he said, uh, whatever may have been my political opinions before I have but one sentiment now, that is we have a government and laws and a flag and they must all be sustained. There are but two parties now traitors and patriots, 
and I want hereafter to be ranked with the latter, and I trust the stronger party. Um, he may have been an ambivalent political observer in the pre-1861 life, but he was always an American nationalist, um, inculcated in his, in his West Point years and his army years, um, and he is a, a, a tried and stalwart unionist. Um, and it's only going to remain constant from there until his death in 1885. Um, I, I, I won't spend uh, too terribly long on the war. Um, but, but, but do tell us, but please do tell us yeah. how he then, with his, uh, and I love the way you described him as a stalwart American nationalist. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us, given his uh, deep concern to preserve the Union, how he gets back into the Army and how yeah. he rises through the Army. Absolutely. Well, uh, an, an, another uh, interesting story. He, uh, he uh, 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 applied for a command of an Illinois regiment, but his uh, commissioning papers got lost in the mail and they sat on a clerk's desk for several weeks in, in Washington. Um, finally, uh, he does get appointed command of the uh, 21st Illinois Volunteers, and he assumed command uh, in Missouri. Um, in late 1861, he was uh, appointed Brigadier General of, of Volunteers um, and, and found himself tasked uh, under the command of the, the Western Command of Henry W. Halleck, um, tasked with uh, opening uh, a highway of invasion. Uh, into Tennessee and beyond. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, in, in early 1862, at a, at a time when the Union war effort was just a complete debacle from the, from the disaster in Virginia at the Battle of First Bull Run with all the way to the inability of Union armies to, to vanquish the incipient rebellion. Here's Grant in February of 1862, uh, capturing two key forts on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers, Fort Henry and Fort Donelson, the latter of which uh, Grant forced the surrender of an entire Confederate army, and the newspapers immediately crowned him a, a, a foremost war hero at a time when uh, the loyal citizenry desperately needed a hero. Um, on, the, on, the, on the mastheads of the newspaper were emblazoned um, unconditional surrender Grant, U.S. Grant. Uh, from there, uh, the, the bloodiest battle of the war to that point at Shiloh in April of 1862, another striking victory. The next year, he opened the Mississippi River with his capture of the great fortress at Vicksburg, uh, and then the siege of Chattanooga, which earned him promotion to a three-star generalship um, uh, at the command of Lieutenant General, uh, a, a rank held only previously by George Washington. And by 1864, with three years um, of, of, of horrific war endured by the American public, Grant came to command all of the United States armies uh, when, in, beginning in May of 1864, uh, he engaged Robert E. Lee in Virginia, uh, in which he developed a grand strategy across the entire war front to end the war and vanquish the Confederacy, which he did um, the following year. Uh, in April of 1865. But one of, the, one of the most fascinating things about Grant's generalship, I think, is how he ultimately came to see the preservation of the Union and emancipation as synonymous. 
Grant came to share the exact same belief as did his commander in chief. They may not have seen it at the beginning of the war, but both Lincoln and Grant and countless white loyal citizens believed that in order to defeat the Confederacy, in order to preserve the Union, the Republic had to vanquish and eliminate slavery for all time. Slavery is the one source of dissolution of this union, of strife, of civil war. And it had, it had to go. Um, this is what Grant wrote several months after the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. Slavery is dead and cannot be resurrected. It would take a standing army to maintain slavery in the South if we were to make peace today. I was never an abolitionist not even what could be called anti-slavery, but I try to judge fairly and honestly, and it becomes patent to my mind early in the rebellion that the North and South could never live at peace with each other, except as one nation and that without slavery. That's gonna be key because Grant, Lincoln, scores of other moderate unionists and Republicans believe that with slavery eliminated, peace will thrive for all time. Now we're gonna come back to that because as Grant will learn, it's not as simple as simply eliminating slavery from the American landscape. It is about defining um, and giving a, a, a texture and substance to uh, biracial freedom. That's a fascinating point that you're making because you're talking about Grant as a general and this realization, having a political realization about the need to get rid of slavery and a political ground for that as opposed to the moral arguments of the abolitionists and others like Frederick Douglass. Um, but you know, one of the things about in the rehabilitation of Grant is in part rehabilitation of him as a general uh, because a lot of people, certainly during the war and his detractors during the war, argued he's only successful because he's brutal, bloody-minded, conducts endless frontal assaults, and just doesn't care about the lives of his soldiers, unlike uh, the George McClellans of the world. And that's the only reason he's actually successful, and that the, the cost of that success is not worth it. People during the war made those arguments. What's your response to that? Yeah, and that has been that has been a longstanding, uh, in, in my mind, patently uh, un, unfair uh, image of Grant that has been um, uh, foisted upon him, uh, really since the the late nineteenth century. So, I think I would um, echo a lot of the revisionists of late who have who have made um, two points, among many, but 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 two in particular about this this idea of Grant as the butcher. Uh, was the nickname that he incurred. So first, um, I will say this. There's, there, there, there's a famous uh, quote that, that, that Grant has after, long after the war. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's in his memoirs when he says, um, uh, after the Battle of Shiloh, it became clear to me that we could not win the war, we could not defeat the South except by complete conquest. What did he mean by complete conquest? Well, conquest in this, uh, in this realm is emancipation. Uh, conquest is um, dismantling and destroying the Confederacy's uh, ability to make and wage war. Um, conquest is convincing white Southerners that an unjust military resistance 
against federal authority uh, is futile. But uh, secondly, uh, Grant was not a butcher because he actually deplored the idea of um, uh, sending uh, men into the military machine simply to die in a, in a haphazard, callous way. Um, there, 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 there's a few interesting stats here. Um, when Grant uh, began his campaigns in Tennessee in the early spring of 1862, all the way, a little more than two years later, uh, to the beginning of his campaigns against Lee in Virginia in May of 1864, Grant's uh, commands incurred about 30,000 casualties. That's killed, wounded, and missing. And we're talking major campaigns, the Henry and Donaldson campaign, the Battle of Shiloh, the eight-month Vicksburg campaign, and Chattanooga, 30,000 casualties. In that same time span, Robert E. Lee expended 90,000 of his own soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia. Wow. And so three, three times as many casualties. In, indeed, indeed. Um, and so we, we have to think about um, uh, how, how Grant is a, is a very shrewd strategist to husband lives, to husband resources, um, whereas Robert E. Lee's strategy actually demanded um, the, the, the overwhelming uh, loss of life because um, the, the, the quest for national independence demanded it. Lee is searching for a quick and decisive victory because the longer the war goes, the less likely it is that Confederates can achieve national independence. Now, it is true that Grant and Lee's campaigns in Virginia from the first week of May 1864 to the end of June 1864 were unlike anything the American public had experienced to that point. Tens of thousands, upward of 60,000 uh, federal casualties during that time. Um, but the thing that the detractors in the late 19th and early 20th centuries missed about those casualty figures, it's not Grant the Butcher, more so than it is Grant's army um, supporting what he's doing. It is utterly horrific, the amount of destruction incurred in the Union Army, but I think one illustration really helps us understand why Grant and his men became so close during the Virginia campaigns. The Army of the Potomac had done nothing for three years except retreat and fall back. Their, their commanders ambivalent about engaging with Lee. Well, after the Battle of, uh, of uh, the Wilderness, May 5th and 6th, 1864, Instead of Grant pulling his army back into uh, central Virginia, he gets on his horse and he rides south and effectively looks behind him and, and asks the army if they're going to go with him. And, and his men are on the side of the roads cheering, throwing their hats in the air. And we now have a commander who's actually going to take the fight to Lee. And he did. Um, and it's a strategy that worked. Uh, he, he prevented Robert E. Lee from dictating the course of war in, in a manner that he had done. Uh, for the previous two years, um, and Grant is doing what is necessary to uh, dismantle the Confederacy, and it is it is incredibly bloody, and it is incredibly destructive, but it is what had to be done. Um, as we move to the end of the war, one last, last um, issue that has arisen for Grant as a general in the Union Army, which I think presages it in many ways, Grant as president, Reconstruction, and civil rights, is 
um, black troops in the Union Army. Lots of folks have probably, see, listeners have seen, and if they haven't, I strongly recommend the wonderful movie Glory about the 54th Massachusetts. What was Grant's position on black troops in the Union Army? A huge, ardent, unequivocal supporter of black troops. Um, Grant shares Lincoln's view of the absolute military necessity of using largely formerly enslaved men who were coerced to work in uh, the Confederate armies, re uh, removing that source of labor from Confederate armies and now transplanting them um, into uh, United States armies. Uh, there, there, there's a military logic to it, but Grant also comes to see the moral logic of it as well. Um, he, he, he wrote on in about um, the, the virtue of black men serving under the American flag in a cause not only for union, but for freedom. And like Lincoln, Grant came to, to, to believe that whenever Confederates committed atrocities um, against black soldiers, which they did, it was Confederate policy to do so, um, the United States government had a, had a moral obligation to defend the rights of those men who were serving as public volunteers um, in the ranks of Union armies. Um, and he is one of the war's great champions of, of black soldiers. And you're right, um, we're gonna see how this translates um, into, into his reconstruction policy. Take us now to the end of the war. The, the surrender at Appomattox, of course, with Grant and Lee. And um, talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, a little bit about that and how Grant transitions then after the end of the Civil War. Yeah, it's a, it, 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 it's a great, uh, confusing moment. Um, you know, we, we think of Appomattox as this grand finale um, in which these two great armies finally reach the end of the road. And to an extent, that is true, but Appomattox is only the surrender of one Confederate army. Um, it is not the formal, um, specific end of the American Civil War. Nevertheless, um, Grant is tasked only with the surrender of Lee's army, and he arrives at Appomattox having met with President Lincoln um, the previous month uh, with specific instructions on how to occasion the surrender of, of Lee's forces. Uh, Lincoln and Grant share a belief that uh, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's army, must surrender and must not take up arms again against the Union, but that also the, the United States Army must extend some kind of magnanimity, some kind of mercy toward uh, defeated Confederates. Why? Grant's overriding fear in April of 1865 is a, is a massive people's insurgency. Um, if the United States is too coercive to Confederates, so thinks Grant, former Confederates will believe that they don't have a protected place um, in the United States and will resort to guerrilla warfare. So what Grant wants to do is end the fighting in Virginia demobilize Lee's army and guarantee that further resistance and further war will not take place. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't um, uh, uh, 
force Lee to surrender unconditionally. There, there are conditions in place. One of those conditions is that Lee's men will be paroled, which means this. Lee's men uh, will be given um, little pieces of paper that say that they are, they are, they are free to go home and, and resume their lives um, as private civilians um, with a guarantee that the federal government will not harass them, harass them in their private lives. And in return, in exchange, these men uh, promise not to take up arms against uh, the federal government. It's, it's kind of a negotiated compromise, but it, it leaves so many questions um, unanswered. Um, and um, I, I would encourage listeners to, to read um, uh, a book by Carolyn Janney uh, called Ends of War um, about this uh, uh, three months after Appomattox that deals with all the complexities of the parole system and the disbanding of Lee's army. Um, but it is, it is crucial to understand that, that Grant wants to turn the nation toward some kind of peace footing um, so that the civil government, the, 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 the federal government, the politicians, can start to lay the groundwork for uh, what Lincoln called a just and lasting peace. Now, what is Grant's role um, in, the, in the weeks and months after Appomattox? Well, he's the general in chief of, of all United States armies. Um, he is the number one guy. Uh, the only person above him is his boss um, after April 15th, 1865. That is um, President Andrew Johnson. To make a long story short, uh, over, the, over the next six to 12 months, and then the 18 months, and then the two years, Grant is going to experience a severe break with Andrew Johnson. Um, he, he, he comes to loathe and, and um, really distrust Johnson because he thinks that Johnson is, 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 is sullying um, the verdict that Grant secured at Appomattox. Yes. Johnson wants to maintain a preserved union, but Johnson is also from 1865 into 1867 um, blessing the rebirth and the rebuilding of the old white Southern ruling class in the South, the very uh, planter class that Grant had dedicated four years of um, his military life uh, to defeating. Um, people of color, formerly enslaved people, are being placed back in um, conditions of pseudo-freedom, even pseudo-slavery. And Grant comes to see this as an insult uh, to, to the verdicts of the war. So much so that Grant breaks, as, as, as a general of the army, he breaks with uh, President Johnson and actually becomes quite political. Um, he begins working uh, with Republicans in Congress um, specifically in late 1867 um, and early 1868 on a series of bills known as the Reconstruction Acts, uh, which uh, effectively placed the South under military occupation, erased all of the state governments that had been um, put into place by Andrew Johnson, and most importantly, the Reconstruction Acts enfranchise um, African-American men in the formerly Southern states. And this is, it, it, I don't want to say it's Grant's handiwork because there, there, there are plenty of Republicans in Congress spearheading this, but Grant acts as an advisor in this role. Um, his, his handprint, his thumbprint is absolutely on the Reconstruction Acts 
And what Grant comes to see as, a, as, as an emerging um, referendum of the post-war era, and that is civil rights. Much like emancipation, Grant becomes to see, comes to see the necessity of, uh, of, of civil rights, uh, black enfranchisement, as ways to maintain the meaning of union, the meaning of the war, um, by broadening a new base of, uh, uh, by, by broadening a new electorate in the South, uh, by building a Southern coalition of white unionists and black Southerners, all of whom share in the, in the need of defining emancipation. So he, of course, becomes, as you say, increasingly political as a general, but then he openly then breaks into politics uh, in 1868. Yes, yes. Uh, there, there is nobody in the United States um, who, who shares Grant's overwhelming reputation among the white loyal citizenry um, than, than U.S. Grant. Um, prior to Lincoln's death, it is Lincoln and Grant on the same pedestal, and nobody else. Um, and in, in, in the wake of uh, Lincoln's uh, terrible, unfortunate passing, Grant is seen as the nation's stalwart hero. And, and the Republican Party absolutely has him on tap for the presidential election of 1868. Now, Grant really didn't like politics. He, he, he hated being put in a political position by Andrew Johnson, but just as he did in war, now in peace, Grant comes to serve the country. And here, here's another aspect of the rehabilitation that revisionists uh, have been doing over the last 25 years. Grant is not a rubber stamp for the Republicans in Congress. That, 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 was, a, that was an image you know, in, the, in the 30s and 40s, you know, Grant the bumbling politician who doesn't know what he's doing, who's being used by the nefarious, quote unquote, nefarious radicals in Congress. No, no, no. no. If anything, Grant shares, absolutely shares, um, the so-called radical Republican vision for Reconstruction. And not only is he going to uh, presumably rubber stamp things, he's going to be defining them. Um, and he's going to be implementing them um, as the chief, chief executive. And the electorate knows this. Um, the electorate absolutely knows this. Let me give you um, just one just one quote, um, let's see, from Pontotoc, Mississippi, which is not very far from where I am right now. Um, a white Southern Unionist wrote that Grant is destined to rise above all and finally terminate the war gloriously for Union. I now believe our civil administration will be as beneficial as his military record is brilliant. These, these petitions, these letters, these newspaper articles are everywhere. Everyone sees Grant as the, as the salvation and the healer um, of the Republic, um, black and white alike, especially formerly enslaved people. Um, uh, Grant supporters, Republican supporters, believe he was the second coming of Lincoln. Um, there, was a, there was an unfortunate interlude with Andrew Johnson separating Lincoln and Grant, but the, uh, the meaning of the war that, be, that began with Lincoln is now going to be concluded with Grant. And it's all summed up in, in Grant's acceptance of the Republican Party's nomination for him as president when he said, let us have peace. It, 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 it's, such a, it's such a deliciously vague, yet very specific 
um, call for, for the, where the country should head, and the electorate knew it. Um, and in 1868, this is the first election in all of American history in which black men are granted the right to vote. And Grant's election um, is spearheaded in large measure by the um, several hundred thousand black men uh, who gave their first vote for the presidency uh, to U.S. Grant. Hmm. What about the legacy, the reputation of Grant as president? The reputation, the common myth or the common position view, certainly for a long time, had been brilliant general, terrible president. Great yeah. executive on the battlefield in, <clears throat> in strategic military thinking, bad executive when engaged in the administration of the law and in relations with Congress. Absolutely. Um, this, is, this is indeed the big one. And um, I, I think I'll start by answering your question with this. Um, in the year 2000, uh, the C-SPAN uh, presidential rankings, which come out every four years or so, um, ranked Ulysses S. Grant number 32. Um, and in 2000, what would that be, out of 40, 42, 43 presidents? Yeah, that's pretty low. It, it, it's very low. Well, uh, two decades later, uh, last year in 2021, uh, the same ranking now has Grant at number 20, so up 13 spots. Um, more specific categories. Uh, in the year 2000, under the category of moral authority, uh, historians ranked him at number 31. Um, and in 2021, he is now at 17. But here's the big one. In the year 2000, historians ranked Grant under the category of pursued equal justice for all at number 18. And last year, He's at number six under the category of pursued equal justice for all. Um, it, it, is, it is within that category, Grant as the civil rights president, that has really uh, driven his uh, uh, complete revision. Um, so what happened? Where, where did we start with, uh, with uh, Grant's reputation as president? Well, I have to start with one of my favorite quotes, um, even though it's completely misplaced, but it's it's, a, it's humorous nonetheless, from uh, Henry Adams, uh, the great satirist of the mid to late 19th century, who uh, 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 condemned Grant, quote, as a great soldier, but a baby politician. That 2,000 years after Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, a man like Grant should be called the highest product of the most advanced evolution, actually made evolution ludicrous. The progress of evolution from President Washington to President Grant was alone evidence enough to upset Darwin. U.S., uniquely stupid. Um, and then it goes on from there. Um, wow, that's a very harsh condemnation. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. And so why? why? Why is it like this? What happened? Well, I think there's several things that happened um, between the 1890s and the 1940s that just completely uh, derailed Grant's standing in the American imagination. Uh, the first, and, and, and the easiest to explain, um, Grant did not like public speaking. He did not like politics, even though I think he was a pretty good politician. 
And so when you read his stuff, it, it, it's actually, it, it, it could come off as simple and undeveloped and unthoughtful. Now, none of that's true, but when you're, when you're um, um, coming on the heels of someone like Lincoln and, and you just compare the one with the other, um, there's great differences. And, and Grant's political enemies in, in the Republican Party in particular hated this. Um, they, 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 they were embarrassed um, that, 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 the, that the Republican president, who's, who's now here to preserve the union again, simply did not possess Lincoln's soaring rhetoric. Um, and he didn't. Uh, Grant didn't possess Lincoln's rhetoric, but I, I don't think any of us do. Um, so I, I think that that's kind of unfair. Um, secondly, by the late 19th century, as we know, um, the myth of the lost cause um, had completely captivated um, uh, American popular culture. This, this narrative promoted by former Confederates that the war was not about slavery, that both sides fought for equally noble and principled causes, that there wasn't a right side, there wasn't a wrong side, that everybody could be their own hero while we just quietly, quietly, uh, but explicitly, push emancipation and the real meaning of the war, the real right and wrong, as Frederick Douglass said, push that uh, to, to the side. Um, here also is where we start to see Grant as butcher, Grant as, as heartless uh, war criminal. And then as president, we see Grant as this um, aloof drunk who, who promoted corruption, who uh, was emboldened and enriched by corruption, who also oversaw the uh, military bayonet rule of the South, putting the, the federal boot on the neck of prostrate white Southerners, um, uh, forcing uh, formerly enslaved people to, to hold office, who then became um, inept and incompetent themselves. Um, it, it, it's, the, it's the myth of uh, ruthless carpetbaggers and gutless scalawags. In other words, it is an unfortunate um, and tragic era. That, that's one of the catchphrases in the early 20th century. Um, the Lost Cause is, is captured on film early in the 20th century with the birth of a nation, which is given a blessing at the White House by, by Woodrow Wilson, no less. And so, so the Lost Cause is able to paper over and just eliminate the Unionist and Emancipationist causes from American memory. And, and I think that there's a very, I mean, there's, there's many reasons for this. But insofar as it relates to Grant, I think it's because at the end of his life, Grant made sure to get on paper that there was a right and a wrong side um, to this conflict. And that's, that's really one of the themes that, 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 that comes out of his uh, uh, wonderful memoirs. Um, he, he says uh, in, in there, the cause of the great war of the rebellion against the United States will have to be attributed to slavery. For some years before the war began, it was a trite saying among some politicians that a state half slave and half free cannot exist. All must become slave or all free or the state will go down. Now, I took no part myself in any such view of the case at the time, but since the war is over, reviewing the whole question, I have come to the conclusion that that saying is true. 
Confederates had fought so long and valiantly and had suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought and one for which there was the least excuse. There's no, there's by 1885, when Grant wrote his memoirs, there is no uh, gray area here. He is, he is laying down for posterity what the war was about, what it was not about, um, why the right side won and uh, the right side lost. Um, and he, he, uh, he did this again um, before the memoirs in the late 1870s on his grand world tour. He met with Otto von Bismarck, uh, the leader of Prussia, and they had a conversation. And, and Bismarck is going on and on about, you know, um, uh, you only had to do this once, wage a war of national restoration. Um, and Grant said, yeah, but it, it wasn't just about union. It wasn't just about restoration. Um, he says, union and emancipation, um, uh, a philosophical idea had to be linked together. And so he's laying down in the 1870s and 1880s um, exactly what the union cause was. And that's why, that's why the lost cause had to besmirch his presidential reputation uh, for decades. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, one thing I would, I'll assert that Grant, for which Grant did get a fair reputation, was what you were just talking about, his memoirs, which have been really widely acknowledged, certainly in the last 50 years, if not longer, as maybe the very best presidential memoirs ever written. For the sake of our listeners, in, in our concluding moments here, tell us about the story of Grant's memoirs. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of a sad story, um, but it's it has a happy ending for us, at least. Um, toward the end of his life, um, Grant, Grant was a, an extremely honest person. And he placed, or, or he, he, he imparted much of his own honesty onto others. And he, he, he was kind of unassuming of other people's ill motives. Well, in the mid-1880s, or early 1880s, um, he, he entered into a business venture uh, with, a, uh, with an investor in New York who completely swindled him uh, out of his life savings. Well, um, shortly thereafter, uh, Grant was diagnosed with throat cancer, uh, which was uh, essentially a death sentence, and, and, and it turned out to be. Well, um, Grant faced a huge problem. Let's go back to his family. His number one objective in life is to take care of his family. And he feared dying from the throat cancer um, and leaving his family destitute and penniless. And so with the help of uh, his uh, friend, uh, Mark Twain, uh, no less, uh, uh, Twain helped Grant uh, get a book deal uh, with Century Magazine, I believe, in which Grant would, uh, Grant's family would receive like 70% uh, of, the, of the royalties if he wrote his memoirs. And so quite literally to his dying day, uh, writing in New York City and then later at uh, Mount McGregor in upstate New York, Grant penned his, his memoirs, uh, which became a runaway bestseller and made today, uh, I think it's a couple million dollars, uh, which allowed his family to live in his absence um, after his death in 1885. 
Um, and, and you're right, uh, Grant, uh, Grant went to painstaking levels uh, to maintain accuracy um, as much as possible, to fact check um, his, his, uh, his, his recounting of history, but also to make sure, to make sure that his perspective and his principle is laid out on paper uh, for, for posterity. Um, in this revision of Grant's reputation in the 200th uh, anniversary of him, what's the one quality that has impressed you as a scholar of this period of U.S. Grant that you just really find the most admirable and that you want our listeners and more broadly Americans to understand? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that question. So, um, I'll start answering it by this. I, I had the great pleasure in March um, to deliver the keynote address at the Ulysses S. Grant Association's uh, annual meeting, which also uh, kicked off the bicentennial celebration uh, during the year. And, and, and the, the subject of my speech, my talk, um, it, it was called Lincoln's Protege, Ulysses S. Grant and the New Birth of Freedom. And the title kind of speaks for itself. Um, but this, this is what most impressed me about him. Yes, um, he communicated in a simple way, but he also articulated the enduring meaning of the American Union, the American regime, the constitutional order, all of which are rooted in what Grant came to understand as the immutable principles um, outlined in the Declaration of Independence. To be sure, Grant nor anybody of his time uh, lived up to those principles. There are many policies, particularly Grant's policy with Native Americans, um, that, that contrasted in devastating ways um, with uh, what he came to believe, the immutable principle of American life. But nevertheless, uh, Grant, um, Grant died, I'm convinced, having learned and, and articulated to the best of his ability and implemented through policy during the presidency that which Lincoln himself um, attempted and succeeded in articulating um, during the 1850s um, and 1860s. Um, and I think that Grant knew that. I think that he knew what he was doing in, in conveying and, and setting this standard uh, for Americans, teaching Americans, um, knowing that each generation has to be reminded of, of the American creed um, and, the, and the purpose and principle of the American project. Um, I think he got that. Um, and it's something that he didn't grow up knowing. Um, that this had to be learned. This had to be learned. And I, I think it came to him uh, during the crisis of the Union, Civil War, um, and Reconstruction. Fascinating. Andrew Lang, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us to give us this really remarkable portrait of a fascinating, complex, and uh, hopefully no longer misunderstood American. Thank you again for joining us on The American Idea. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.